Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Okay. Well, it's nice to see you. It is a lovely morning. It's a privilege to be here. And we're going to read from um, uh, the Gospel of Luke this morning and from chapter 4 and beginning at verse 14. So Luke, Luke 4 and beginning at verse 14. We've, we've said that uh, our concern in these mornings is to think in terms of Christ-shaped mission. And we began on Monday by thinking about uh, Christ's manner. And uh, yesterday we were thinking in terms of his message, the time is fulfilled, and so on in Mark. And I suppose this morning we could, we could think in terms of uh, his declaration of his mission. Luke 4.14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Amen. I recently read a newspaper article on journalism itself, and the writer made this observation. He wrote, we're awash in media, in media-generated emotion. How do you feel has replaced what happened as the obligatory question reporters ask. 
those of you who are involved in journalism know that uh, the essential questions of journalism, especially in reporting news, had to do with what, where, when, why, how. And the writer is saying, actually now people go immediately onto the scene of an incident to ask how people are feeling about it. And there is a tremendous amount of that that has crept into our study of the Bible. Uh, home Bible studies often degenerate very quickly into a discussion of how do you feel about this, uh, or what do you think it means, or what, do, what does it mean to you? And of course, the answer is we're not really interested in what it means to you until first we know what it means. Once we know what it means, then we can think beyond that, but until we know what it means, going beyond that is actually unhelpful. Now, I begin in this way because you know that Luke, when he begins his gospel, is pointing out very clearly that, and this is the very beginning of the chapter, of the first chapter. You remember, he says, there are many people have undertaken to write a narrative of the things concerning Jesus. And just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, I begin there just simply that we might understand that Luke is not, first of all, dealing in feelings. There's plenty of emotion in the narrative that unfolds. But he's concerned to let his readers know, and Theophilus is identified in particular, to let them know what has happened and why it matters. And as he writes his gospel, uh, he has this very clearly in mind. He is himself a, con a convinced and committed follower of the Lord Jesus. And his desire is that those who are reading his letter or reading his gospel might become just as convinced and just as committed as himself. And his concern for the history of it comes across clearly even in the earlier chapters. For example, if your Bible is open, and it should be, then you will see at the beginning of chapter 3, it, it reads a little bit like some of us when we were trying to answer questions in our history O level. And we, we didn't really know the answer to the question as it was set, so we thought we would pad it with some information to try and get us uh, off to a start. And it seems a little bit like that, doesn't it? The beginning of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Well, what about all the first part? All that, who's a tetrarch and who's, who his cousin was and everything? Well, you have to remember what he said. I wanted to write for you an orderly account. What is, he, what is he telling us there? Well, he's telling us at least two things. That the context into which John the Baptist came was very, very dark. These people were, were not nice people that he's describing here. They were bad characters. So God sends his servant into the darkness. That servant identifying himself as a finger pointing to he who is the light of the world. Also, it is in that context that the message of God comes, not simply in a time of darkness, but out of a time of silence. For in the intertestamental period, generations had come and gone asking the question, where is a word from God? 
How are we going to hear from God? The voice of the prophets has gone silent. And so Luke very carefully identifies this happened in real time, in a real place, in a real context, and in that environment, this is how it unfolds. It's important for us to bear this in mind for many reasons, but not least of all for this, that when we speak to neighbors and friends, when we go out into whatever our world is, we're not dealing in the realm here of historical fiction. We're dealing in the realm of non-fiction. We are dealing with that which actually happened. Real time, real place, real people. And Luke very carefully is pointing this out. And it is in the course of that that he gives to us essentially the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is in many ways akin to what we looked at in Mark yesterday. But this is Luke's presentation. And in verse 14, as we read, Jesus has now returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He has come out of the temptation experience in the wilderness, and he has begun, verse 15, to teach in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he's been touring Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is his preaching that has attracted a great deal of attention and admiration. It asks the question or begs the question, I wonder what his response will be in his hometown. And of course, he's now going to record that for us. One thing is absolutely certain. When confronted with the claims of the Lord Jesus, men and women then and now discover very quickly that neutrality is not actually an option. For uh, an abstention is really a negative vote. The primary task of Jesus, prior to going to Jerusalem to suffer and die as the Lamb of God, his primary uh, task was to preach the Word of God. As we saw yesterday, to declare that the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Now, let me just pause and, and come back around to something that I said yesterday, where I made the comment that I think uh, sometimes people in the pew think that when we, as uh, uh, the students and, and teachers of the Bible, uh, say these things, that we're trying to establish some kind of job security. But I do want to say a, a, a couple of things about preaching itself. Because preaching, uh, preaching is in the shadows, uh, you know, in an earlier generation, Sangster, the great Methodist preacher, that was actually his line. Preaching is in the shadows, he said. The world does not believe in it. I, I think we can update that. To preaching is in the shadows, by and large, the church does not believe in it. Okay? So instead of being able to sustain some kind of monologue, uh, we, we, we show slides, uh, video clips, and all kinds of things, because apparently now, at this point in history, nobody is able to listen for more than, you know, uh, 15 minutes. Everybody is suffering from attention deficit disorder. And so, in a capitulation to that, uh, we're going to accommodate it. Jesus' preaching was fantastic. It was lively, it was authoritative, it was well-organized, it was practical, it was interesting, and it was true. That's the standard for preaching. And to the extent that if we dare to preach like Jesus, we will then discover that we will not be building a popularity base. We will discover that some will be scared, 
Some will be offended. Some will believe. And a few will find themselves entirely indifferent to it. In lectures given to the theological faculty at Yale in the 1950s, James Stewart, the Scottish Presbyterian, said to the students and faculty at Yale this. This is the 1950s. I was there, and I can see that a number of you were there as well. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is Stuart. Surely in this immensely critical hour, when the soul is destined to meet amid the crash of old beliefs, the ruthless challenge and assault of doubt and disillusionment, when history itself is being revised, and no one can forecast the shape of things to come. The church needs men. Men who, knowing the world around them, and knowing the Christ above them and within them, will set the trumpet of the gospel to their lips and proclaim it boldly, imaginatively, winsomely, and beseechingly. The late John Murray, the professor at Westminster Seminary, was driving in the highlands of Scotland with uh, Willie Mackenzie, William Mackenzie of Christian Focus. And Murray asked Mackenzie, William, what is the difference between a lecture and preaching? And Mackenzie plowed around for a while seeking for an answer, and, but did not satisfy the good professor. The professor says, no, you're not even close to it. So then Mackenzie said, I give in, what is it? Said the professor, preaching is a personal, passionate plea. Okay? In what respect, said Mackenzie, in this respect, we beseech you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is what is happening. That is what Jesus was doing. Jesus was the one who brought the very reconciliation. That which, he that which he proclaimed, he provided. And, and Luke here is pointing to Jesus, holding him up before us and letting us know that as he comes now to his hometown, understandably, all eyes are upon him. And you can imagine what would have been uh, there in the, in the local uh, billboards and so on. Hometown preacher visits Nazareth carpenter turned preacher uh, to fill the local pulpit. Well, the kind of headlines that we might expect. Because Jesus was, of course, no stranger to Nazareth. Now, you know that if you know your Bible. Earlier in Luke, he has described the circumstances. They, that is Mary, Joseph, Jesus, returned to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. We don't really have anything about this in the Bible, do we? It's fascinating. We, we, we go really from there right to the age of 12 and the encounter in the temple. And we don't need to allow our imaginations to run wild. He was a Jewish boy brought up in a Jewish home. Therefore, the Shema was his morning and the Shema was his evening. Before he fell asleep, Joseph or Mary in Joseph's absence would have rehearsed for him. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And these things are to be upon your hearts and you shall teach them to your children when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. That was how Jesus went to sleep. 
And when he gathered in the synagogue, he sang the Psalms, the same Psalms that many of us will be singing and do sing, not the metrical Psalms in Scotland, the proper Psalms before the Scottish people fiddled with it. But nevertheless, you, we, we, Jesus, Jesus does not just suddenly appear at the age of 30, you know, drop down from nowhere. He's a real boy living in a real home with a real mom and dad and real brothers and sisters. You can say that up here. Once you get down to Dublin, you're not allowed to say that. But the Bible says it very clearly. Yes, he did have brothers and sisters. And so now he comes. And it is a customary pattern. And he was invited. He, I, I love, as was his custom. It's a lovely little phrase, isn't it? As was his custom. <laughs> this is just a passing thing. Especially for you young couples. And uh, you're so preoccupied with your children that you can go to church, particularly in the evenings. Let me give you a suggestion. The mom can stay home one week, and dad can go. And the dad can stay home one week, and the mom can go. And then they can enjoy the privilege of reporting to each other what happened at the service and what they learned and how they sang and everything. And that will filter to the children as well. And if you do not make it customary then every Sunday you will have the same discussions. Well, what are we going to do tonight? I mean, what do you think about tonight? I mean, how do you feel? After all, it's been a busy week and all they go round and round. As opposed to saying, this is what we do. This is what we do. The children go nuts. Oh, do we have to? Yes. Why? You'll thank me one day. As was his custom. You remember in, in, in Hamlet, just as I'm saying this now, you remember in Hamlet, when the, in, in the gravediggers scene, and, and uh, they, they come on the gravediggers, and, they, and they're, they're, they're having a joke. They're having a carry-on. And, and uh, one says to the other, I've forgotten the characters a long time since A-levels, but they, they, uh, the, the one says to the other, well, what's this about? And, and, and the reply is, custom hath made of it a matter of easiness. In other words, it is so routine. The gravedigger cannot cry at every funeral because it has become so customary. That was a long digression. I apologize for it. I will catch up. And as was his custom, I want to encourage you uh, to, think, to think in Eric little terms. Do you remember chariots of fire? This was just amazing to me. Everybody in America loved chariots of fire. Fantastic. Eric Little. Wouldn't run on a Sunday. What a great guy. Sorry I won't be at church. Got to play football. But we love Eric Little. Yes, he was a great soul. Yeah, as was his custom. There we have it. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Given to him. The expectation would be that he would read a short section and then comment on it. Now, what we have here, then, in the quote from Isaiah is a description of the Lord's anointed one, of the Messiah of God, the deliverer whom God had promised and the one who was expected uh, by the people of God. And back in verse uh, 15 of chapter 3, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now, why would they even ask a question? Because they were anticipating that the Messiah would come. Now, if you look at the verbs here, and, and just, and just uh, take them. And imagine this going into slow motion or seeing it in slow motion. Okay? 
So here we have it. He stood up. He received the scroll. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place. He read the text. He rolled up the scroll. He returned the scroll. And he was seated. This, again, is is the masterful work of an eyewitness account. Again, true to what Luke is saying. I've researched this very carefully, and although I wasn't present on this occasion, I know for a fact that this is exactly how it unfolded. You don't invent stuff like this if you're inventing a gospel, as liberal theology would suggest to us, that sometime 250 years after this all happened, they got together and put it together and thought that we could do a good job. No, if you were going to do that, you would, you would never go to this extent. And as a result of what has happened, we're told that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, because now he has sat down. And unlike me standing up, the teacher was in a seated position. And so having sat down, uh, they looked to him. Now, I think probably on this occasion we would be uh, fair to assume that Jesus said more than what is recorded for us here. But his opening statement um, is so riveting that it sets forward all the remainder uh, of the context. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. A clear, simple, breathtaking announcement. Jesus, the carpenter, declares himself the Christ. Jesus, the boy who was known in the community for running around with his friends. Jesus, who learned the alphabet taught by Mary, I presume. Jesus, who learned the colors of the rainbow in the reality of his humanity, who grew up in this context, now sits before them and says the unthinkable. Today, all that everyone has been looking forward to in this passage is now fulfilled in your hearing. Nobody could mistake what he was saying. I am the one of whom the prophet has spoken. They have been waiting for this. Luke has already introduced us in his his early part of the narrative, in the birth narratives of Jesus. He's, He's given us a little inkling of this. That's the significance of Anna. What a lovely lady Anna must have been. And there she was, waiting for the redemption of Israel. People who said to you, what are you waiting for? So I'm waiting for the redemption of Israel. How is that going to happen? Well, the Messiah will come. Well, it's been a long time. Yes, I know, but he will come. And what about Simeon? He took the child in his arms and he says, Lord, I can go now. For my eyes have seen your salvation. In this child who is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. Real time, real place, real event. Now let's just pause for a minute. Here we are in the 21st century thinking about the world. 
with the rise of superpowers, with the exaltation of men, with the significant movements across all of the universe. What is it that allows us stability in the midst of it all? It is simply this, that the Lord God omnipotent reigns. It doesn't always seem so, but it is so. Because he who declares himself to be the Christ in Nazareth is the ascended king of the universe and rules over all of these things. Trump, Theresa May, the Korean guy, all of them. All of them. That's why I said to you yesterday, you cannot make sense of the history of the world without theological history, without the biblical narrative. Because it is the biblical narrative that can give to us an understanding of what is happening. And so... This, of course, is what Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, he refers to as the mystery of his will, whereby uh, he has come in the fullness of time, and he has preached peace to those who were far away, and he has preached peace to those who were near. So what then is the mission that has been entrusted to him as he takes up uh, the anointed role as he is the anointed one? Well, we could spend the entire morning working this out, we're not going to, which should be an encouragement to some, and doubtless not a disappointment to any, but you have pastors of your own, and, and you have a Bible, and you can think. But it is a proclamation of good news, isn't it? It's uh, good news uh, to the poor, to the prisoner, to the blind, to the oppressed. Now, without neglecting the physical and social dimensions of all that is contained in this, I take it that the emphasis in application is, first of all, spiritual, spiritual. That here we have uh, the great statement that comes into our broken world as to how it is that God has planned to bring about uh, all that he desires in a new heaven and in a new earth. And it is into that broken world that the news of the gospel comes. So that those who are then made aware of their spiritual poverty can discover all of the riches that is found in Jesus. It is this that as the gospel goes on, we're going to discover is taking place. Uh, I mentioned little Zacchaeus yesterday. Uh, what an amazing uh, situation that is. He thought he had everything. He was friendless. He was pretty hopeless, I think. And yet he discovered in Jesus that he, the poverty of his own spirit and the riches that were his in Christ. And that was why he said, you know, if, if I've taken anything from anybody, I can just give most of it away. Because now all I have is Christ. Good news for the captives. For individuals who are crushed by the bitter effects of the choices that they have made. With no apparent way of escape. Coming to discover that if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. I don't know where I was in the last while. I think it was in Germany. And I, I, we were going down a side street. And I, I came to uh, what was clearly uh, a nightclub. And, and the name of the nightclub was Sin. Sin. I said, this is good. I said, now we got a little honesty going here. Because most of them would be, you know, fun. But it had a steel door and a big padlock and three letters in English. Sin. The sin that holds people 
in a grip from which they are unable to extricate themselves. Who can do this? Who in the entire world can do this? Who can cleanse? Who can forgive? Who can free? Who can save? But God alone. Only Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. Only Jesus. Therefore, our message has to be this message. Our mission is still this mission, to go to those who are oppressed, to those who are in poverty of spirit and so on, and to tell them of Jesus. And the background here to the idea of the year of the Lord's favor is the picture of the year of Jubilee from the Old Testament and particularly from Leviticus. And now, how would he proclaim this year of Jubilee, this year of favor? Well, you know, if you know anything about the year of Jubilee, it had to do with the fact that in the year of Jubilee, all the debts were off. If you could make it to the 50th year, it was a good year, especially if you had a, if you had a deficit that was significant. And that was the plan for, for the people in that time. And Jesus has come to proclaim what? To proclaim that in him, all our debts are canceled. That in him, we find a forgiveness that we don't deserve. In, in the old Christmas card that I, I remember in the back of my mind, you know, he came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owe a debt we cannot pay. In essence, that's what he said. He says, I'm here to let you know. I'm here to let you know this wonderful news. Now, as John says, we're not at John yet. We have to wait till tomorrow. But as, as John says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What a wonderful message. When I was stumbling around yesterday afternoon, I, I was trying to walk to um, someplace to, people told me to walk. If you walk along here, you get a coffee. So I said, okay, I can do that. It's called, um, what's the place called? Down there, there with, the, with the old inn where C.S. Lewis had his honeymoon. What's it called? Crawfordsburn, yeah, I still can't remember it. But anyway, so I'm walking to, I'm walking to Crawfordsburn, and, uh, and uh, I felt like I'd walked about 10 miles, and I, I couldn't see any sign of a coffee anywhere in sight. Every time, it kept, every time you thought you were at the end, it went around a corner. And uh, eventually, I just said to a couple, I caught up with a, a, an older couple, I said, uh, I, you know, where's the, where's the coffee? And uh, they said, well, well, anyway... The fellow says to me, he says, well, look, he says, if you just, my wife and I have just parked our car. If you just come up here, you know, we can take you in the car and, and uh, we'll just drop you down where you can get a coffee. I said, well, I can't do that. I said, because I told the fellow I'm going to walk to the coffee. And then if you take me in the car, then I won't be able to say that I did the walk. <laughs> he said, well, do you care? I said, no, not really. So I said, fine. <laughs> but what he didn't tell me was how far away his car was. His car was about three-quarters of a mile away from where I met him. After three-quarters of a mile, I would have been drinking coffee by that time. But here's the strange thing. I met two lost souls, two intelligent people. When I told them what I was doing, they said, oh, we were brought up in that kind of background. But we moved away from that. We found it far too restricting, far too narrow. This proclamation of the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus. We had to move on beyond that. And I walked away from the conversation 
saying there's no two ways about this. You see, people like that would be happy to wear a t-shirt that says on the front, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They would wear that. But they're not prepared to put on the back how the verse finishes. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when we turn to this and think about our mission in the world, we realize that what is being proclaimed to us here is so straightforward. And the reaction of people is so obvious as well. Speaking well of him at first and then rejecting him as the truth dawns. And what is it that causes them to turn their back on him? The fact that the gospel is going to go beyond them and out into the whole world. That, that he says to them, you know, in the old days, in Elisha's day, there were a lot of people that had leprosy, but the person who was cleansed of his leprosy wasn't one of our boys. It crossed, it crossed cultures. It went beyond Judaism. He was a pagan. And the same was true in terms of uh, Zarephath and the woman who was a widow. You see, the problem for the listeners of Jesus was not that they couldn't cope with the idea of the coming of the kingdom of God, but that the fact that the coming of the kingdom of God was, it was tied entirely and exclusively to Jesus. And so they said, well, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? They'd heard he was a healer, but he'd healed no one in Nazareth. And knowing what's in their minds, he says to them, you're probably saying, physician, heal yourself. Do us one of those signs. And if you do one of those signs for us, then maybe we'll believe in you. But you see, the confidence of heaven is in the Bible. Remember the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus. And he says, you know, uh, could you please send somebody to my brothers? Could you, could you do this? And the answer is, no, I couldn't do it. They have Moses and the prophets. Oh, he says, but Moses and the prophets, we, can't, we won't be able to do just with Moses and the prophets. We need something more than that. And remember the reply. If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not listen to anyone, even if he would rise from the dead. And that's exactly the case. The confidence of heaven is in the scriptures. So that Jesus then is there, if you like, a proclaimer of the Old Testament scriptures. They refuse to accept that the door of salvation would be open to all. They could not handle the fact that it was good news of great joy for all people, irrespective of nationality or of gender or of social status. Their collective problem was, in fact, like the Pharisee in the parable Jesus told uh, concerning the publican or the sinner and the Pharisee. Uh, they were very sure of themselves. They were sure in themselves. When they thought in terms of salvation, uh, they saw it as a salvation that they deserved, but they didn't actually need. Whereas the publican realized it was a salvation that he needed, but he didn't deserve. And you see, this is, this is only the Spirit of God that works this. Only, only God softens hard hearts. Only God opens blind eyes. Simeon, as I mentioned earlier, and I should draw to a close, Simeon um, has already said that this child 
would be appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And that's exactly what you have. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. (laughs) That's not even nice. (laughs) One of their own boys. One of the boys from the town. What, what What would bring that kind of fierce, brutal reaction to one so kind? Why is it that the name of Jesus is maligned in our world? Nobody jams his fingers in the car door and says, Oh, Buddha. No one that I've met. Christ is profane. Christ is abused. Christ is rejected. Christ is routinely thrown over the cliff. Why? Well, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 3 and to the great conflict that exists in the entire world which is resolved at the cross. Checkmate. But as the Westminster Confession tells us, the the Christian is, is still involved in a continual and irreconcilable war. Because although the victory is absolutely established at the cross, the evil one is still playing moves on the chessboard of life. Can't prevent us from coming to Christ. Tries to make a dreadful mess of our lives in Christ. People today are consistently amazed by his words and yet at the same time see no reason to accept his words. And the contemporary pressure, at least where I live, and I think we're in the same boat here, um, the contemporary pressure on the church is to at least soften this story. You know, why don't you just talk about wells, you know, drilling wells? Why don't you just talk about social justice? Why don't you just talk about all these things, which are all, if you like, representative of the Christian community fulfilling its role in Christ? But that is not why we've gone around the world. When when the mission conference in Edinburgh, the previous, the one a hundred years ago, when that mission conference met, nobody was in any doubt about what they were doing in the world. It was packed and it was clear. A hundred years later, the numbers were diminished and the clarity was virtually gone. Why? Because nothing will quench our commitment to world mission quicker than a loss of conviction in the truth, power, and relevance of the gospel. Everybody ought to know who who Jesus is as he has revealed himself. Not a cardboard Jesus, not a plasticine Jesus, not a Jesus of our own configuration, but the Jesus that is given to us in Scripture. So I got to the place where C.S. Lewis had his honeymoon. And uh, I thought, this is fantastic. And, uh, And then it made me think of this quote with which I finish. Now, this is the silver chair. For those of you who can remember far enough back or like me are enjoying this on the third time around now with your grandchildren. 
And uh, I'll just read this. Uh, those of you who are C.S. Lewis readers will be able to pick this up. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. If you believe there's another stream, then you don't believe the gospel. Christ's mission, clear. Lord, we thank you that we can go back to our Bibles and see if these things are so. We thank you that uh, there is is a clarity, an unfolding wonder in all that you've given to us in these gospel records. We scratch the surface. We, We leave so much behind us, even in our considerations in this time. But we thank you that it brings us again and again to Jesus so that we might then begin to have something of the boldness of the apostles post-resurrection, post-ascension. And I declare to you that there is salvation in none other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, fill us afresh with these convictions and then grant to us a genuine compassion so that we might uh, kindly and winsomely Tell others this story so that unbelievers may become the committed followers of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.